Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Joe and Gus from Alt-J and producer Charlie Andrew to talk about how they recorded and produced the album Relaxer. Alt-J are an alternative three-piece from the UK, featuring the talents of Joe Newman, Gus Unger-Hamilton and Tom Green. The group was originally formed in 2007 under the name Films, when the current band and former member Gore Sainsbury all met while studying at Leeds University. After graduating, the band moved to Cambridge, where they spent some time developing their music, going on to record a four-track demo EP with then-fledgling producer Charlie Andrew and signing a deal with Infectious Music in December 2011. The group's studio debut, An Awesome Wave, arrived in 2012 and went on to win the coveted Mercury Prize, alongside three Brit Award nominations. The band's increasing success and heavy touring schedule led to the amicable departure of Gwil at the end of 2013. Alt-J has since released the albums This Is Yours and Relaxer, both of which were produced by Charlie Andrew, with the former hitting the number one spot on the UK album charts in September 2014. Charlie is making his third appearance on Tape Notes. A graduate of the industry-renowned Tonmeister course at Surrey University, Charlie first worked as an assistant at the legendary Abbey Road Studios. Alongside this, he was gigging in London as the drummer in his own band Laurel Collective, and it was here that he cut his teeth as an engineer and producer. Eventually moving to London, Charlie found himself a warehouse space to use as a makeshift studio, and his career as a producer began in earnest, and to date has seen him work with the likes of Madness, Darwin Dees, Nick Mulvey, and London Grammar. Charlie has notched up numerous awards over the years for his production skills, including an MPG and Brit Award for Producer of the Year for his work on Alt-J's An Awesome Wave. Today, I'm here at Iguana Studios with Joe, Gus and Charlie to talk about the album Relaxer. And what better way to start that conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is In Cold Blood. It is In Cold Blood by Alt-J. I'm John Kennedy, as you know, and and we're here in one of the tiny rooms here at Iguana Studios. I'll get you all to introduce yourself. So, Charlie, if you speak... Hello. um, Then we know who you are, and Gus. Hi, I'm Gus. And Joe. Hello, I'm Joe. And you all know this room and this building pretty well because you've actually worked here many, many times. Charlie and the two of you, Joe Mm. and Gus, have have recorded all the Alt-J albums to date together. Yeah. And... mm, at least two of them have been mainly recorded here. Am I right in thinking that? That's correct, yeah. Yes, yeah. that is correct, yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, when we very first started, the very first album, I wasn't even here. Right. I was in a warehouse space, and that's when I first met the guys. And we, we did a couple of the tracks in my warehouse, and then I moved here when we finished the album. Basically, yeah. That, that first Three album. Three quarters of the album, wasn't it? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then second album, and then Relaxer was mixed here once we'd recorded it at Strongroom. Right, okay. And that warehouse, that was not too far away? Was it, where was it, Wandsworth or, or Brixton? Southgate or? Road. Southgate, yeah, um, Shoreditch. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so a different part of the, of the country, I was going to say. A different part of the city. <laughs> felt, felt like it to me every time I went yeah. there, because I've always lived southwest for some reason. Mm. So going up there was good over an hour commute every morning. Yeah, unnecessary. Yeah. But, uh, then you had to commute down to Iguana after yeah, all. Yeah, I know. I live very near that warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And, and those initial meetings um, were kind of experimental, weren't they? Because you were just sussing each other out, I think, weren't you, in those kind of seeing what could be done, how it could work. Yeah, I mean, we met Charlie. Charlie was a friend of a friend, basically. And, you know, we, this friend of mine knew that we had a, I had a band at university. I was in a band. And, um, you know, sort of said, oh, my mate Charlie is a producer. And, you know, I, I can talk to him about maybe you guys doing a few days recording at his studio in London. And I think actually you'd only met this friend, Nick, like a couple of weeks before that, maybe, or not long he, before that. He um, literally started talking to me while I was queuing up to get a pint at a bar. There you go. That <laughs> um, sounds like him. And the rest is history, as it were. Yeah. yeah. And then we came down and, yeah, we, we spent a few days in London, met Charlie, recorded, and we sort of played him a few of our songs. And Charlie chose Matilda and was like, you know, that one's good. Let's record that one. And that's the mm. version that ended up on an awesome wave. Yeah. Wow. It amazing. was quite amazing, actually. Um, spending a weekend with Charlie and then having a finished product and being so happy with it and it being like a dream come true I think finding a a producer that just understood the music was excited by the music as much as we were Um, because you hear all these horror stories of bands sort of going through producers and being misunderstood or misrepresented and never finding one they like never finding anyone they like and I think we found someone that really kind of dug us mm. yeah. Uh, so yeah. a lot of serendipity and fate involved yeah. in this yep. yeah and then millions of album sales later um, you gathered together again to work on Relaxer um, yeah. so at, how did you go about approaching this album and obviously you had a lot of history together you'd worked together many times in different places mm. I mean so you guys had had about a year off, hadn't you, or something? Or a bit of time off. You'd yeah. finished the, quite a long tour on album two. Mm. And then I remember, well, just like we'd talked about it and sort of decided to do the tracking at Strong Room for, you know, sort of change the scene, also geographically, well, eastwards. So it's mm. good, good for you guys. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was an amazing place to work in there, you know, because I mean, I, I remember doing a lot of downtime in there back in the day when I was sort of learning my, my craft. And um, so I knew the place pretty well. So it was a it was a great great place to be for the for the album. Yeah. Yeah. And so and uh, at that point, at what state of readiness was the material? I and mean, uh, do, do you like things worked out before you go into a studio, or are you better off in the studio working things out then? I think we there is a period of time before we go to the um, studio and and see Charlie, where we get together as a band. And we discuss things and we play together and we craft the songs to a a standard where we are then keen to show Charlie and to see what he thinks. So that may take three to two months. And and and, and before that process, you know, obviously we're we're writing uh, sketches of these songs. Mm. 
Um, so sometimes we have rounded songs. Sometimes we have songs that need the, a little bit of work, but um, the final, the final polish and the final mending or the fixing process is with Charlie in the studio. Yeah. So we're going to look at three songs from Relaxer today and uh, listen to how they were created and and built up. And the first of those is going to be three WW. Yeah. Um, and g- can you remember? The genesis of this song, and and you know when you first showed it to Charlie, what what stage of development it, it was? I think when we first showed it to Charlie, we we must have been working on it in uh, in our writing studio. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we'd kind of spent some. It'd been written in different stages. Um, the intro was something that you'd had on a guitar for a long time, I think. Yeah. And then you and Tom, Tom worked out a kind of like a some drums and sort of bass to go along with, with that. Yeah. And then we different parts of it got added while we were writing it in the studio we were writing in. and then I think we we probably had a fairly good demo of that when we came down to Charlie's I would have mm. thought yeah structurally and stuff yeah. this this one definitely had um like the whole intro really I've not done that much to it I gave it you know mixed it a bit and sort of given it a bit polished but it's you and Tom had created the initial yeah drum beat and guitar groove yes that's correct and I remember when, when we were listening to it in the studio thinking I've got no more ideas for this. This is just great. You know what I mean? Yeah. We don't, there's no need to mess around with this. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's got such a lovely sort of brooding depth to it that um, I think if we just tried to recreate it, we probably would be constantly wanting it to sound like it already does. So, yeah. Um, uh, Should we have a listen to the finished track and yeah. then and then take it apart a little? Okay. So that intro then, that you'd had that for a long time, Joe, yeah. working on it. Yeah. And then that pulse, that click, that rhythm, mm. um, that was something that Tom created reacting to what you had. Yeah. We were in um, we were in Berlin, we were in a place called Funkhaus, um, doing this kind of big, amazing musical project with um, Michelberger, the hotel there in Berlin. And um, we were just jamming, like at open rooms, other musicians could just come in and see what you were doing and ask to sit down to listen to what you were doing or they would like sit down and get their guitar out and play it with you um, and in between some downtime where that was happening we we started working on this and I played him this riff that I had which was just the guitar and Tom immediately started listening and responding and very quickly we had the intro to three warm words mm. amazing mm. one of the great things about what you do is is the the seeming simplicity to it mm. in some ways. You know, that you create and find something like that, but don't immediately think you have to go through a series of other stages with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. How a lot of people think, oh, right, well, now I need a big major chord here and then, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah. you always resist that temptation. I think we have quite a delicate way of writing where we, we, we build these small objects and just leave them and come back to them when we're ready. We, there's no pressure to add to it. Um, and I think some, a lot of the time there's a lot of small objects on the table and, and the writing process is really assembling those objects to make a song. Um, and so it can take quite a long time. Yeah, in but, some but that's what's always one of the many factors that I absolutely adore working with Alt-J is that the songwriting is not 
traditional in any mm. sense. Well, not in any sense, because there's quite a lot of traditional sort of uh, references in maybe harmonies and stuff like that. But the structures are, not, are never sort of conventional. Um, and it's just magical, really, because you can go anywhere you like. It's not like, right, now's the verse, here's the chorus. Um, yeah, it's really think, fun to work on. Yeah, I think originally it was an insecurity not knowing really how to write a proper song and, and, and we did see ourselves as cowboys but actually it's become something that we see as a strength now mm. because I think it does create more of an unconventional way in which um, you know we we approach writing and, and how people then learn to expect us as writers yeah mm. and do you think that technique has been informed by your experience at university with art backgrounds I mean it's interesting that you um, referred Joe to these little sections that you you work on and then put aside as objects. Mm. You no, know, because obviously an object is a physical thing, and these yeah. are, these are oral or audio things. But yeah. but in your mind, they're still still objects, and 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 you know it's almost a, a sculptor's approach or a painter's approach. Yeah, well, I you know I think it was my dad. He listens to our music and sees each song as an architectural space. Um, and like the intro being sort of like the foyer and then sort of the chorus being the main hall and, and he feels as though he's walking through the, the building as he listens to the music because mm. um, there's so many wonderful dynamics that, that we work on as, as a band and producer that um, it, you, you'd get a sense of, um, yeah, a church-like experience, I think, or, or some, some contemporary, um, you know, brutalist architecture. Mm. Yeah. Know. Which like is interesting that. because that kind of comes in later on. I'm sure we'll we'll be talking about that as well. There there are real footsteps, and yeah, <laughs> um, and and you are recording in a well, obviously recording in many different real buildings, <laughs> but a real building that you yep. walk through. And um, but um, so Charlie, then y you were presented with this intro mm -hmm. that you felt well, you know, that doesn't need much embellishment. No, no so I mean, if I I'd show you a few bits of what what the guys brought to me. So this uh, Tom over the years has really developed his skills on. Ableton as well, and his own sort of programming um, skills are really, you know, they're really exciting to listen to. Mm. And a, a lot of the writing, sort of more recently, that the guys have done has been revolved around that, you know, when they're on the road or whatever. Um, and so we've really tried to keep a lot of that in what we've sort of, when we make the albums, you know. Um, so here's the drum beat from the start. And then you've got this lovely sort of drone. And there's some more bits, and they've got double basses. Just, it just sucks you in, doesn't it? Mm, just, completely. Just, I just remember us all being in the control room, just being like, mm. yeah, God yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting because, I mean, I've always heard, you know, Spanish overtones to that guitar part or uh, spaghetti western type things but now listening to that stripped back a bit further I'm also hearing a lot of Middle Eastern um, things in there too mm -hmm. um, and obviously there are connections between yeah. Morocco and Spain etc but it, it's it's quite interesting isn't it because it becomes quite hypnotic I mean mm -hmm. in many ways you could just leave that and we could all yeah. slip into a trance yeah. and, and just disappear which maybe you did for a while well, yeah. well I think I think initially with writing it can be quite a lonely experience. And I think a good, something that counters that is um, something that mesmerizes you when you're writing and that you can actually, you don't feel alone. You feel like you're engaged in 
finding the moment. And I think the way that I sometimes approach that when writing on the guitar is creating rhythms with my fingers, with the bass string and something that's happening on lower strings. And I create this mesmerizing moment um, and that sucks me into into something where I don't want to be with anyone, where I only want to write. Um, and I think if you listen to the guitar part, the bass has a very strong movement, which mm. I think is the backbone to the... Yeah, should I just play that again? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. You can hear, you hear very quietly there's a the little click. bit of click spill. Click spill, yeah. Because this was recorded again in when their guys were writing it in Berlin. And just obviously just had a mic in the room and lots of click or something was happening, but it was spilling. But again, it was like when you add the drum beat, like it became part of the rhythm, it wasn't a problem. Yeah, because at first we were like, oh, that click spill. But yeah. the more you listen to it, the more you realise that it, it the click spill fuses with mm. the rhythm of the guitar and then the beat. And it has this lovely, yeah. it adds to the layering of something yeah, that's cool. grooving. Yeah. And now really... I'm hearing Ali Fagaturi and, and West Africa. Mm. This, this is this is great. Nice. So it's, it's a nice long intro as well. I think for that reason, is like that is you're just mesmerised by it, and you don't want it. It wouldn't work if it was shorter. You know, you just wanna, no. you just want to be immersed in it for some time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, what happened next? I mean, what did you decide to to do once you had this great intro? What did we decide to do? So did you know? Who... So we go on to this bit. I think actually the structure generally was there. Mm. The, the, one of the big changes that happened in the studio, I think, was what I'm calling the middle eight here. And I think we there was something great there, but I think we just had a bit of a jam session. Do you remember with mm. with Tom with his OP one? I think it was. Oh yeah. And um, what's an OP one? So it's a, a keyboard that I don't know. It's very very sort of popular at the moment. And it's very good for just jamming quickly, writing things and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it's a cool piece of kit, really. Yeah. And it's very portable. Um, but it makes some awesome sounds. And um, so, yeah, we sort of just had a bit of a jam. And sort of this part ended up happening, I think. Can you hear it emerging? So that's the OP1. Yeah, I believe so. Is that was that with the breakdown with the girls from the pool say hi? Yes. Mm. Yeah. So it sort of took this this point in the track to a completely different place. If I just then open up the track. Was this your first time? Just those synths sort of made it. Mm. Yeah. Suddenly made it uh, took it to a yet another dimension, basically. Yeah. Um, but the arrangement was all, all there, I think, yeah. generally. Um, but th so that section came from a, a bit of a jam in the studio. And then mm. in terms of uh, the voices and the other voices and the words, uh, uh, when you did that jam, was it still just working on the music of the song or had you already started to think in terms of, you know, what words yeah. can I add to this? Yeah, I think we, um, I think to bolster the mood of, that section we wanted to get some field recordings and we wanted a sort of a, a direct window into the story we were telling by actually getting our girlfriends to provide the voices for these wayward girls and this wayward lad and um, in the background you have the Hitchcock kind of strings and it, it creates this mood and this environment that I think we were 
um, it was quite vivid for us. I, but, I yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there's quite a lot of that on this whole album, isn't there? Quite a lot of field recordings where mm. we sort of would take you to the actual place the scene is set. Yeah, on, you know, and that's something that Joe was very keen on doing, and we sort of embraced it. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but you had this scenario in terms of a, a narrative to the words. Yeah. Or well, did you had these words already, or. Uh, so we had the words already, yeah, yeah um, and it was drenched in nostalgia, and I think we wanted to, again, show a window into, you know, a, a field recording to, to, to say this is a moment in someone's life that they won't forget, and we want to make this as memorable as possible, sonically, for you, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Shall I just play that? We went to Shoreditch House, and they don't have, they have a rules... No recording equipment, no cameras, nothing. But um, to have the guy's manager manage to sort of pull a favour. Right. Mm. And so we went there on a very cold sort of Monday morning, I seem to remember. Yeah. And um, Joe and Gus's girlfriends kindly went for a swim and we recorded them swimming. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a lyric. A, that's that, a really strange <laughs> situation where now, now if you get ready, jump in the pool and we'll just stand and you're all there fully clothed, kind of mm. watching, yeah. not getting involved. No. Yeah. <laughs> I, do, I do remember one of the staff up there sort of ringing through to management looking at us. Yeah. And I, I was like, I know in a few minutes we're going to be told to right wrap this up you know what are you doing you know we have to explain what we what we are doing so you recorded them swimming in the pool did you record the high in in the pool yeah Yeah. Yeah. so this is them swimming in the pool and it's so it's something so um beautiful about the noise of splashing and Mm. moving around in the pool but yeah There you go. Yeah, I love that. We, we did about twenty takes of that, and yeah. ended up using the first one that first like one. we right. thought was you know we, they were like oh, I wasn't quite in time. Kind of try saying it together, saying it low, saying it high, you know. Yeah. And then and then we, in the end, we just thought that was the first one that was the best one. The yeah. spontaneous what were they one. trying to keep it in time with themselves? Or, I think it was just that if you look they, into, if you listen to it, it's sort of a, they they're not saying it at quite the same time. I think right. we sort of was, tried to get it more perfect, and there was the first one that was the best in the end. It was a little sort of. Cheeky sort of uplift, you know. Hi, yeah. You know, that's yeah. What it seemed to be. Also, they swim up to the mic and then say it. Oh, I mean, if you can, nice. can hear them, they're sort of slowly getting louder. So they swim up and then, yeah. Hi. Like that. It was this good because the staggering, I think, made it more clear to the listener mm. um, of the two voices of our girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Amazing. But see, in my mind, maybe I've invented this story, but I always picture this as being on top of um, a skyscraper somewhere warm like Las Vegas or L.A. (laughs) and a pool on top of this Mm. skyscraper and you being there and you being on tour and having this encounter. But have I completely created that? No, there is a story exactly like that in L.A. Yeah, Yeah, first time we went to L.A. Yeah, we met some um, teachers, I think they were. I don't know. Yeah, we met some teachers and they were in the pool and they started chatting with us and um, this was our first time in America and speaking to an American was still a very kind of special new feeling for us and uh, there was these two girls in the pool and we just talked about what we were doing, what they were doing Yeah, and then um, the next day they left a note saying, uh, or, or we were told by maybe the concierge saying that the girls in the pool say hi <laughs> and it was it was, it was was quite a... It was quite a memorable experience in a way because there was a lot of first-time things happening 
you know, being in LA, speaking to an American, being in a pool, just chilling out in a band. It was all really exciting. Yeah. We didn't have to think about, you know, going to work the next week in an office. We were like doing the band thing. And so it was all a very special period of time for us. And that girls from the pool say hi. I always was like, I'd like to put that in the song. Yeah. It was a good moment. And does that actually relate to the song? I mean, the whole thing has been lyrically quite seamlessly stitched together, yeah. considering that I think that it makes sense. As, when you read the whole lyrics of the song, it does make sense, but there's different elements of it that were completely unrelated to each other, but they were sort of, yeah, I suppose, stitched together. Yeah, mm. to create three worn words. Yes. So what happened next? No, because obviously you've got Ellie singing too. Yeah, we've got Ellie. Ellie from, Ellie from Wolf Alice. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So you'd been on tour with Wolf Alice. Um, we are on the second album, yeah. yeah. They supported yeah. us quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, working with Ellie was um, was a joy, wasn't it? She wasn't it was there for very long, but no, she just nailed it. Mm. Yeah, she. Um, yeah, I think we wanted to get a female voice, firstly, just to offer a different dynamic than the usual me. Um, and uh, she just has a lovely, lovely way of using her voice, and mm. she's got a good relationship with the microphone, with the mm. recording booth. She can just get into a lovely place and yeah she really sort of took on board the directions that you know we were sort of throwing at her you know like you know, and um she just what, what, really what got into those directions do you think well i mean joe you sort of explained to her you know she's basically one of the, one of the characters from the yeah from the song um and then it's just getting that right tone again like when this, the girls were swimming in the pool you know and i think when she enjoyed it when joe and i've been singing it together and we were when the you know working on the song, we sang it in fourths apart, and I'm then we get got Ellie to do that. It meant her singing one part quite a lot lower than was comfortable for her, and it kind of gave it this very breathy. I don't know if you can play that, but um, kind of like so, her so. singing almost out of her range, so it's so low, as she gives it quite a cool sound. Yeah, so mm. this is the main part, I believe. Girls from the pool say hi. No, I had this harmony part. I don't know. The road a road set five feet per year along England's east coastline. Was this your first time? Love is just a button we pressed last night by a campfire. It's gorgeous though, isn't it? Mm, it comes mm. out really nice. Um, yeah, just getting, yeah, just that breathiness, that sort of, it's very kind of intimate. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's, yeah, sorry. Again, one of the things that's in the, you know, the vibe of the song. Um, so, yeah, she, I don't know how long she was there. It wasn't very long, but she really got it very quickly. Very professional. Yeah. Lovely person to work with. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. I mean, towards the end of, well, right at the end of the whole album making, another another thing that was an absolute joy was that we were given the budget and opportunity to then do strings for the whole album. Well, pretty much, you know, there's about four, four or five songs that we put strings on. Yeah. And we, we spent the day at um, Studio 2 at Abbey Road, which for me, I've got to put my hand up and say, that's the highlight of my whole career. Like, just that, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. that, that day, going back there, because I used to be, a, you know, a runner there and then there's tape op, and then to go back and actually produce a session there was, um, yeah, like a dream come true, really. And it, sort of, it went seamlessly as well. And um, Kirsty and my wife had done the arrangements and, and with, with the guys, we, did a, we sort of spent a week here first sort of writing that all out. And then, um, yeah, she was leading the orchestra. So mm, yeah, 
made me well up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but so that was one thing. The reason I was mentioning that is because that was basically the icing on the cake on the song. So we got the lovely brooding nature of the guitar part and the drums at the beginning. But we managed to enhance that all with basically with double basses and um, which I'll play now. This take was just obviously two double basses just constantly just repeating the same note, but it gave that lovely depth yeah. to the whole thing. Um, and and then, that was recorded at Abbey Road? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then it sort of, obviously the, the part develops and it's just playing off what's already there on the song, but it just gives it an extra width, you know? Mm. It's one of those things you wouldn't necessarily be overly aware of it you might notice it when it's taken away again if you know what I mean yeah it's just I mean that studio as well it's just a lovely sound <laughs> yeah it's very um, interesting though because um, I mean obviously on some of the songs you know you can hear a full orchestra uh, but you've yeah. recorded lots of string parts for various different projects mm. in th the room that we're here now you know and, and Kirsty might turn up and do her bit get a friend to do another bit and then yeah. you layer that up or you know, so, well, so this had a different kind of exactly, approach exactly so for album one and two I think we did that what you've just explained mm. it was more just a couple of players and sort of built up and we'd work on the the arrangement all together discussing well that sounds nice maybe we'll do this da, da, da. For, for this way obviously we had to have it all prepped and ready to go because we had a 30 piece string orchestra and we had to get it all done in four hours and so you know you can't go over time because mm. that yeah. would just be too expensive mm. So we, yeah, we had to make sure we were ready to go and it's all written out. And um, yeah, thankfully we, we got it right. Mm, fantastic. So really exciting to be able to you know, play the track and have them play on top of it in yeah, that fashion. exactly. And, 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 and witness your song come to life in a, in a different yeah, way. Yeah, it was. What was really good as well was, um, I mean, I, I spent the evening before with the conductor just to explain to him what it is we're trying to do. And before each song, we played the whole song to the orchestra so they knew what it was, you know, and they could get into the, to the soul of it, I suppose. Because mm. I've been to sessions where they don't do that, and they just, here's your bars, play it, you know, but you need to understand the dynamic of it first. Yeah. And it really worked, and they, they, they really enjoyed it, I know that for a fact. Mm. They, there were some nice comments afterwards. Yeah. It would be great to hear the, um, the whole ensemble performing together. Okay. Three warm words. Well, I'll go from when Joe starts singing. Actually, me that starts it, Charlie. Sorry. Yeah. It is, isn't it? <laughs> there was a wayward lad stepped out one morning. You wrote this, didn't you? Guys? I wrote this as a sort of a trying to write a folk song, I suppose. And then that seemed to fit really well with what you had written lyrically for this song. Yeah. It was quite a coincidence in a way, I suppose. I think it was, yeah. I think you were kind of sort of like rubbing your foot into the ground, looking down, being like, I've written something. And I was like, okay, great, let's let's listen to it. And and he played it. Or you were humming it, I think, in between, yeah, sort of yeah. like jamming. And I was mm. like, that sounds great. Why don't you sing that at the beginning of Three One Words? And we worked it in and it worked really, really well. Mm. And also I just love the, the play between two different voices and three mm. different voices. And it really reminds you that it's a cast of characters and not necessarily two guys singing in a band or yeah you know we get a guest appearance from Ellie from Morphalis it's we treat them as characters and and singers acting these characters out yeah it's really interesting in that way and also the, the part that you came up with Gus mm. has a 
uh, more of an English folk feel, yeah. which is a, a, yeah. a really nice contrast to what's already being created and, yeah. and the, the yeah. almost world uh, connections that that has. Mm. No, it's really interesting. And the fact I think the song is sort of a, the whole thing is almost a folk song in the way that it tells a story, almost like a almost like a moral story, really, isn't mm. it? In a sense of sort of don't don't be fooled by people's people's words in the heat of the moment. You know, it's yeah. uh, something that you have to learn as a young young person yeah. going into the world of. Sex. Yeah. <laughs> so is that what it's about then? Well, essentially, in a nutshell, it's a uh, it's a guy who wakes up, wakes have up breakfast. On, <laughs> have some breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he he wakes up and it's one day of of uh, of his travels. It's yeah. One day yeah. of many, where he's sort of like seeing the world, walking the land, and I sort of based it on the book, my bit on the on the book, because I walks out one midsummer morning by Laurie Lee and then Joe kind of takes up the story of this sort of young man wandering is probably about 18 meets these two girls in a field sure in a midnight country field yeah has a romantic experience with them in a tent or if by you, a fire by a fire in a bush whatever you like <laughs> it, is by, it is by a fire isn't it because it, that was like um yeah, our friend's story about oh, losing yeah. his virginity by a, by a fire, and now he gets aroused whenever he smells wood smoke. <laughs> yeah. That's wow. the, that's a great that's a great bit of trivia. Yeah, my, my friend that's Max. A true story. Every time he has sex, um, no, not every time he has sex. <laughs> he smells smoke. <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, but I thought that was just fantastic. Like, yeah. so that smell of sex. Good, like burning wood was kind of bonfire a, nights a dangerous night for him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stay indoors yeah. like a werewolf, like a dog. <laughs> yeah, brilliant, yeah. amazing. And so, you, what you actually wrote that, that is that one of the words then? Is that yeah. so? It goes, yeah, so uh, well, that smell of sex, good like burning wood. That's yeah. nice. It's like a nod to my mate Max, yeah, yeah. To, to Max's association. Last night by the campfire, you know, yeah, and then the girls kind of say, Love is just a button repressed by the campfire, and uh, you know. Mm. Are these three on words that we whisper? Yeah, it's sort of like I love you know saying I love you and then sort of going well I don't actually love you. Yeah, but maybe I did last night, but I don't. You know, yeah. This morning I don't. And you'll come across this later in life. I mean, yeah, this will happen now and again, and it's almost like um, you know a sisterly arm around the shoulder after <laughs> after sex. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's like we yeah. did this, but now maybe I'm just say friendly, friendly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, friendly. <laughs> That's great. It's very candid too. But um, and these are universal experiences. You know? But um, but also beautifully rooted in the very personal and very exact. So Max's uh, yeah. story. Yeah. It's you know. uh, yeah. I think the hardest thing for writing is to know when you've been moved by something enough to record it, because I for a lot of this stuff I probably would have forgotten about had I not written it all down. And actually, it's returning to it at a later date when you feel. When the inspiration moves you, um, and you look at these moments that you've documented, whether that's in a scrapbook or in your phone, or mm. um, and that's that's a large part of writing for us, and I think for a lot of people, and I think the difference between good writers that are successful and good writers that or writers that are struggling is that maybe they don't document when they should do. Yeah, absolutely. I think half of writing is remembering or bothering to actually write something down. Lots of people can come up with. Or hear something good, or come up with something good, but only the people who actually get a pencil out, or you know, mm. they're the ones who become writers. You actually have to do it, don't you? You have to yeah. actually yeah. do yeah. it yeah. amazingly. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I have amazing thoughts at, <laughs> yeah. all the time, and uh, they <clears throat> evaporate. Well, and yeah, there's I mean, no art left. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I sometimes I still make the mistake. I'll think of something and I'm like, 
that's pretty cool. And then an hour later, I'm just like, fuck, I didn't write it down. And I can't remember the exact way I've, I actually thought about it. Mm. That you lose the poetry mm. as time goes on. And the moment is where the poetry is at its most potent, I think. Yeah. So you've got to get it down. Very interesting. And it's also really interesting that um, we've mentioned folk music and English folk music and mm. House of the Rising Sun, which we're going to discuss now, is obviously you know, based on a, a classic ballad, um, part of a folk tradition that has been interpreted and used uh, many times over many, many years. And and it, it's interesting because I think that, say, with Alt-J and the band that we would have known up till this point, we wouldn't have associated you with folk music. Mm. Um, and yet you can hear um, connections to it throughout the whole relaxer album yeah so with that in mind let's hear house of the rising sun uh, to get us into that place So House of the Rising Sun by Alt-J from the Relaxer album. It's the second song we're going to look at in depth here uh, on Tape Notes with Gus and Joe and Charlie. And um, you, you already have alluded to this song, uh, Charlie, with regard to the strings and recording those. Yep. Um, but there are many other dimensions to this too, aren't there? Because I, I've got a note uh, that I had made about 20 classical guitarists all playing together on this Yeah. Track. Which was a lot of fun to record. I mean, that again, that came about. Joe had a, it's got the had the guitar part already there, and um, you you had the idea really. You came in and was like, "I want this to be played on 20, 20 guitars." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. I was like, cool. Yeah, sort of noticing the I suppose the issues that would occur hmm. with um, twenty, thirty guitarists playing the exact same thing at the same time. Um, and, and how that would sound, and 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 how audible it would be, and how clear it would be, um, and and actually sort of like 
wondering whether the blur of because it's quite a complicated f- finger picking pattern um and whether that blur would uh, i don't know boost the atmosphere of the mm. song sonically I, yeah i mean the whole thing was a bit of experiment because you know, obviously I'd, i'm not too familiar with too many recordings with that many acoustic guitarists all playing the same thing at the same time so didn't, none of us really knew exactly what was going to happen but like joe said there would be those imperfections that kind of suddenly with that many players creates its own own sonic mm. and what was so we well yeah when we went to um it's just before christmas time i think when we actually yeah. did this yeah um, we went to the church in um, north london um, it's a studio as well yeah <laughs> yes so there's a studio called the church and um the the desk is so big it it uh, is actually in the live room with you um so it's quite nice we're all in the big room together and there's uh, um my old one of my old lecturers from uni was a classical guitarist so we before we went we'd sent two videos of joe playing the part to him so he could transcribe it and um, one one of each hand <laughs> just so we could sort of you know so he could work it out so he he wrote it all out and um sorted 20 20 players who were all phenomenal actually yeah i mean you know um so the when they all arrived part of what we were saying we wanted that blurriness but they're all so good that it was so razor tight yeah <laughs> so we had to um keep um taking the click away you know so so mm. that they were, they just weren't they couldn't be as tight you know so, yeah um and um we had um 3 hours with them just for this song which was brilliant so we had quite a lot of fun trying different configurations there's a balcony so some players up there some players downstairs and we recorded it with a um sort of binaural uh, microphone set up so we could get quite accurate stereo imaging um so yeah we had a lot of fun with it basically yeah. it was just a bit of a geeky day for for me and brett who was engineering the and the whole album and uh yeah i mean basically when they started playing it's um you could hear like the bottom end it sounds like french horns and it's all just the bass notes and the guitars because mm. there's 20 of them it starts sounding mm. like french horns coming out and and I mean, ultimately, when we did the day at Abbey Road, after that, we did add some some low brass as well, just to kind of enhance that. But actually, when I've dropped it in and out, you know, it doesn't it's not necessarily it's still there in the guitars. Yeah, so it's very interesting hearing twenty guitarists, yeah. acoustic guitarists, all playing together. It's amazing. It was just really special to to be in the studio and hear it ourselves as well. You know, it sounds great on the record, but just getting to sit there in that room and hear it was yeah. really, really, really cool. Because yeah. it's an interesting thing. I mean, when I think of um, you know big numbers of people playing guitar together, you know, something like Glenn Branco or somebody like that, mm. but would be employing volume and um, creating a different kind of texture through the use of amplification mm. and. And so it would have a, another dimension, whereas the idea of, of 20 acoustic guitars, mm. um, as you say, it hasn't been done that much, really, or used that mm. much. No. Um, and when we, I mean, part of the reason we, we actually did use the whole three hours because we tried, like I say, different positions in the room, but also different dynamics. So get them all to play really loudly. And obviously you've got lots of lovely level, but then you've got a lot of attack from the strings. So the, the take we ended up with, which is basically what you hear on the record, is the final take. Mm. Um, when we just we nailed the exact sort of dynamics we wanted and all the rest of it. Yeah, they're playing very very softly, so you can't necessarily pick out well the picking of the strings that you know that clearly. Yeah, because that suddenly took away from the lovely sort of warm hug that is created. Yeah, um, yeah. could we hear Joe's guitar on its own? Okay. 
and then that was turned into notation um, by yeah. your former lecturer, and then they assembled it as 20 guitarists yeah. in the church, yeah. then worked from that notation to create what we're going to hear now, which is um, we're just going to hear the guitars on their own. Yeah. And so after getting the, you know, trying all the different dynamic potential mm-hmm. possibilities, you, know, you you arrived at, at thinking softer was... Was definitely, yeah, I think so, yeah, because like I say, when we did the harder ones, it sort of took away, you just heard a lot more clicking noise and strings slapping and stuff like that, whereas you can still hear the, the fret noise, but still that's quite quite nice to hear, actually, I think. Mm. It's also I, I listen to it and it the, just the guitar alone it's it's so cinematic and it does remind me of like the open prairie like the open plains like a prairie mm. and, and 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 a lonely house and and some woman putting washing up in like the 1870s in sort of like Arkansas or something do you know what I mean like it's so it just puts me in a place and I think that's something that we've always been very um, focused on writing it we yeah. want we want the music to take us somewhere very specific and it's hard to know what that is until you start writing and um evaluating and that's that's without the brass in isn't it yeah it really does sound like there's yeah. just brass underneath it. it's amazing yeah you can hear there's, there's now. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 it's amazing so then Crazy. because you were going to do the abbey road session yes you Realised that you could augment well, that. Okay, so yeah. can we hear what what you did to complement? Okay, so here's some strings. So now. I've got the orchestral stuff in there. So it's not made much difference, but it gives it an extra width. Yeah. I mean, in the mix, as the track does develop, they, they're brought up more, but you can just hear the strings, hear the strings peering through there. And... Some strings there, mm-hmm. but again, it's one of those things. That if I take out, some of the width is gone. Mm. Brings back in. Yeah, and if I just show you the brass on their own. Yeah, that's with the guitars and the brass. So it's just enhancing it. It's very, very subtle. It's the bay leaf, isn't it? In the stew. Yeah, that's, that's can't a, very good. It, but very it, uh, good. Just, yeah. just deepens the flavour a little bit. And th- this <laughs> is when the strings really come to their own. Just lovely little swells and stuff like that. And um, yeah, it really is making me think. I mean, obviously, you've just put out um, Reduxa, uh, which is a, a new remix, reinterpretation of the album. But uh, hearing these parts isolated and then, you know, just as instrumentals. I, I, I'd love to hear that as well. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've enjoyed. I mean, I've never really done this with our album. You know, we've no. obviously listened to it a lot, but never, not since we were mixing it. So it's it's cool to do. I'd forgotten. Yeah. You know, little elements it like that keyboard great. bit at the beginning. I'd forgotten about. Actually. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
Um, other things that we added to this to add to the bottom end was uh, we recorded a harmonium. Like so it. we went to my friend Neil Comber's studio and he's got a harmonium in a tiny little box room. Um, again, that was around about Christmas time. Mm. And um, yeah, we went to his for an hour or two and he kindly let us record his harmonium. Is a harmonium a hard thing to record? Because it's this so one, low. This one had a lot of, um, kept making clunks and bumps with the pedals, mm. didn't it? I think that was quite hard. So if I play it now. So we've done quite a lot of denoising on this, I think, because, like I said, there was a lot of... Basically, to make the sound, you have to just pump the pedals. Mm. And you get a lovely sub on it, and it really thickens out the whole bottom end. But you do get a lot of clunking. <laughs> yeah. Um, and normally I quite like that. So yeah. on, the, on the beginning of this song, um, when the, before the guitars start, you can hear them all prepping, and I've kept all that in, just all the room noise and stuff like that. Normally that's great but the, some of the clunking on this was a bit overpowering so we had to really sort that out but yeah there you go that's the harmonium so that adds to the the richness of the bottom end i'm always interested in um this constant questioning that music creators have in their mind so you've created something already that is sounding really great but you're still thinking hmm how can i get a bit more of a width to this, or how can I get a bit more mm. of a more deep resonance mm. to that? Mm. And constantly questioning these things and coming up with potential solutions. You know, mm -hmm. It's quite interesting. And, and you don't think of the solutions necessarily as things that you can come up with yourselves, mm. you know, that you might need to get somebody else involved or go somewhere else that has a particular instrument that you have to utilize in order to achieve that goal. Because mm. I think it's quite, especially when you are a self-contained unit, a, a band, you know, it would often seem, I'm sure, that you have to come up with the solutions yourself mm. because that's that's what the band is about. You know? Yeah. Um, and so do you need to be prodded and pushed to think of these things or do these questions just pop up as you listen to what you've achieved so far and think, actually, we, there's something missing? I think we're as interested in, as much as we are with writing interesting songs, the, the, approaching the recording process in, mm. Uh, you know, uncharacteristic ways, I guess, you know. 100%. Well, like I say, Joe, you know, Joe was, that was Joe's idea to do the 20 guitarists. And mm. I mean, things like a harmonium, I can't, I don't know how that came about. I generally have a to-do list that I just, you know, like we're talking about, if you have an idea, write it down and eventually we'll tick that off. And some, you know, half of that list won't actually get used on the final record. Yeah. You just got to try them out and see yeah. if, see if it, actually did enhance it it did did it actually give it any width or is it just crowding everything and just not necessary you know yeah um i think i think i think in the room when we're all in the studio so everyone's just presenting ideas really and we just see what see what sticks yeah 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 and you're just reacting to what you're doing and and yeah. these little light bulbs go off in your mind um and talking of light bulbs um <laughs> where did the idea come from to use the words of house of the rising sun and create a new musical backdrop to that well i think like the certainly the animals interpretation of house of the rising sun um that i think ha has laid dormant within me for a long 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 time and i think it's in a lot of uh the western europe sort of unconscious i think because it was one of the first moments that england broke um broke america with with their interpretation of blues mm. and i think it's kind of like 
it's in all of us really as a song and I think I was coming up with some guitar chords and I realised that I could sing along to the House of the Rising Sun with these guitar chords and I was just quite interested and intrigued by that. Yeah, it was something that you used to play in Soundcheck quite a lot for even on the first album, I think, you know, you were, yeah. you'd be killing, killing and killing five minutes while they were, you know, setting up a drum mic and just play that and sing it to yourself. I, I Sometimes when I write, I have a few, um, I have a few people that I rely on to gauge whether what I'm doing is good. One of those people is Gus and he doesn't know this, but the mark of uh, I'm on the right track is when several days later after showing Gus something, I hear him humming the thing that I've showed him. And if he's humming it, then I know that it's got, there's something there. And that that happened once with... The old Gus whistle test. The old Gus whistle test, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and Gus was, I think you were, we were in the supermarket and you were, we, you were looking at the milk and humming the... Um, dee 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 from the Hello, House of the Rose yeah. Yeah, yeah and I, I thought okay I'm on the right track <laughs> that's interesting that's are nice. you a big hummer Do you... I am a big hummer right. yeah. yeah we've yeah. talked about yeah. this haven't we Joe sometimes will, will, will point out times when I'm humming I think there was one particular moment where we were in a well, we were finishing a big meal no we we were, we were finishing a fry up in a cafe I and mean, this was probably in like 2012 or something and Gus had it was like all of the sort of residue of everything on the plate was still sort of there and Gus had like that last bit of bread and he was mopping it up and he was mopping and humming so loudly as he was mopping up the plate. I was just like, dude, you've really got to tone down that, that humming, work on the volume because it was really uh, quite aggressive. Uh, that's great though because that's that's... That's the happy Gus. Yeah, exactly. In, yeah. I've got, my, I've got my egg yolk yeah. and my, my, my music in my head. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, the final nice thing I want to say about House Rising Sun is that um, uh, when we were recording the 20 guitarists, they sort of, they all went out on like a sort of Christmas pub crawl afterwards together because they basically were saying, when we've never experienced 20 of us being in the same room together. You know, it was, it's a pretty, pretty unusual instrument to play, the classical guitar, I suppose. And um, so they treated it as a kind of, once in a lifetime social opportunity as well as mm. a, a session, you know, recording session. And that, we thought that was really, really nice. Actually, we sort of mm. brought them together. And yeah. That was cool. Did you accompany them? Did you go with no, them? No, I too? think we had, we went back to the studio and carried yeah. on working. I, I actually remember that's where we went, went off to do the harmonium. Right, yeah. yeah. Right. That was yeah. it, that afternoon. We did it, the morning session, the guitar, and then we went off to do the harmonium. Yeah. Work never stops. <laughs> um, it's part of folk tradition to take the words of one song and come up with a new tune or vice versa. I mean, obviously, we've referred to folk and its um, involvement with this new, this record. Is it something that that has been part of your lives before that? Do do other, you know, members of your family perform folk music or sing? You know, would it be in the house? I do. I mean, on my mum's side, very much so. Yeah, like she's from Sussex, and her family do a lot of folk singing, and kind of people like the Copper family were big inspirations and heroes to them you know and they lived in the same sort of part of Sussex and uh, so I grew up you know going to my grandparents house and singing and learning a lot of folk songs and then you learnt more sort of like not so much English folk more kind of American Americana kind of folk, yeah. folk of a different kind but, yeah like the Laurel Canyon yeah. kind of um, folk writing set from the 60s and um, I think I, I grew up listening to my dad basically singing those songs in the kitchen and then making a little bit of extra money um, on the side. He'd go to pubs and he'd sing those songs. He'd come back with like 60 quid. Um, nice. Yeah, it was good. And he did like five nights a week. He was a real like 
provider. Wow. <laughs> um, and uh, So he'd go out to pubs to earn a bit of extra money yeah, singing yeah. To, on top of his job. That's, yeah. that's And obviously he enjoyed it and it was something... Yeah, no, he liked it. He liked it a lot. I mean, you know, it was like, yeah, it was just drunk middle-aged men and women shouting for songs that he could play and he, I think he kind of enjoyed that and um, obviously synced a few Guinnesses at the end and got a taxi back. Yeah, that's really interesting, though, because in, in what I was going to say, that you're both steeped in tradition. Of, yeah. it, you know, it's part of your background and it's there mm. and it becomes something you can call upon and also something you reference without realising it necessarily Yeah, um, yeah. and employ in the music or in the creation of, of music. Well, it's also something that I, from speaking for myself, I never thought was like cool or could possibly be go into being in a band. I thought that was almost a part of my musical lot upbringing that I would have to kind of um, you know get past and like move on from and then pretty quickly realized actually that the opposite was true and that that sort of stuff was was uh, was really relevant and could could be could be a cool thing to, to bring to the table once we started the band yeah so it wasn't always mm. about the drop yeah the, no 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 <laughs> the, the, although to be fair I was obsessed by the drop kept asking me where the drop was when I was yeah. singing you Spencer the Rover <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've mentioned Ely Cathedral. Um, the next song that we are going to look at is Pleader uh, from the album. And um, part of this was recorded in Ely Cathedral. Um, shall we have a listen to the song and, and we'll get a picture of what it's all about? Some more uh, field recording there from Ely Cathedral. Yep. Yeah. Opening doors, walking down marble passageway. things about the use of field recording on the record is that clearly you had an idea of what kind of things you wanted to record mm. before you recorded them mm. and often field recording gets employed some people go around recording stuff all the time traffic yeah. whatever is around them and then they remember it and, and utilize it yeah um, but you had a really strong idea it seems for each bit of field recording that you were going to mm. use it had a purpose as you were saying earlier joe it had to help tell the story you know, yeah in the same way that you'd utilise a different voice to be another character, the, the field recording is also part of the character yep. and telling of the story. Yeah. Mm. And then sometimes where we were, we'd just hear something that we just thought, let's grab that, that's cool, but we knew we wanted to use it, you know. Like right at the beginning, you've got this kind of roaring of the um, these 19th century heaters they have in the cathedral, which are huge. I mean, they're the size of computers yeah, from massive, the 60s. Like they're big, wow. like cars. And uh, they, they have this, they roar in this really low, cool way. And that was, that was yeah, a nice, it nice was sound. Yeah. Mm. yeah, we had lots of, sorry, geek moment again, we had lots of uh, stereo mics up. And so that's when we, we had that up to get the roar. And then Joe went for a walk around the cathedral. You can hear him coming through the door and walking past the mic. So you get quite a, you're quite involved as a listener because you can hear him going from left to right. Yeah, mm. and and so he was just walking past the microphones that you'd set up to capture something else, but you also yeah. ended up they were sort being of able to record positioned that. over the roaring heater. Yeah, and then yeah, you can hear everything else happening. 
Yeah, it's nice. It's a nice little moment. So, I mean, I remember a few people when we did test pressings and things, but people going, oh, they've left like a one and a half minute gap on the album right in the end before Pleader. Mm. Like, no, no, no. Listen closely. It, it is yeah. really interesting yeah. because obviously, not necessarily obviously, but as somebody who works in radio and playing this music on the radio and playing songs or tracks with a long, fairly low-level ambient section is, mm. is often a challenge to our our um, transmitters, you know, because yeah. they have a certain cutoff point where if a frequency goes too low, then suddenly you'll hear... The backup tapes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> red hot chili peppers, or whatever it is, kick yeah. in, and and completely spoil the moment. Wow, and, yeah, yeah. it's happened a lot in, with bands like Mogwai or something, which yeah. you know had this amazing dynamic range, so it would be really, really loud, and then really, really quiet, and you're you're kind of riding the gain as much as mm. possible, hoping that yeah. nothing kicks in. Wow, um, well, Sigaros would be a good example, but you yeah. you were also culprits with uh, with Pleader for this. <laughs> um, so where should we start with this? Because this is a, a there's a, a lot to this. You know, should we mm. look at the, the the creation of the song first before we analyze maybe a bit of background the on the song and what the song's about, just to kind of give. Cause it's quite a strange one, isn't it? It's almost like a a secular hymn. We've described it as I suppose. Yeah. yeah. In between albums two and three, you read uh, "How Green Was My Valley" by Richard Llewellyn, a sort of classic Welsh novel from the early twentieth century. Yeah, I think Looking it was back f- to the 19th century, I think. Yeah, it was the early 50s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, sort of a fictional account of maybe the author's childhood or something like that, I think. Yeah. I think that how fictional it is has been the subject of some debate. Yes. But anyway, it's about, well, you maybe explain better. It's sort of the decline of a Welsh mining community and mm. human stories within that. Yeah, a coming of age story at, yeah. and the background is the decline of the Welsh mining industry. Yeah. yeah. And... It was all based around some very. You had the guitar part, which, which was one of the first things you showed me for the third album. I think I yeah. remember going to your flat and you playing me two minutes. I thinking it sounded like Bach, you know, Scarlatti, yeah. but then also with this really interesting bass line, boom, boom, ba ba boom, that kind of like boomed along through it. And yeah, uh, it well, really I, cool. I remember coming to you to your flat and mm. being like, um, I knew I was ex- I was so excited about the guitar part that I just wanted to hear. Gus's reaction to it via the keyboard and mm. immediately I remember you immediately was like wah 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 mm, mm. while I was playing and I was like okay that's good he he, he gets it mm, mm. You know? do, do we have that guitar part and do we have that keyboard part yeah I think it's another example of um, quite mes- mesmerising and the, the the pattern and the, 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 it's sort of like you are constantly you're on a loop And that is just a, a normal guitar. A, yep. a, because it is, I can really hear how Gus would think in terms of bark or thing. Because it sounds almost harpsichord-like in, in yeah. places, doesn't it? Mm, yeah, just exactly the, the fast plucked notes. Yeah, mm. there's no strumming or chords or. So I'm just gonna. F- Flip over to the bass part that we're talking about. I think that sets the scene. Mm-hmm. So was that your first reaction? Then? Yeah, because I think what I first heard, I think almost, I could be wrong here, but I think that those notes are in your guitar part. They were, you maybe hadn't even noticed them in that oh, pattern. No. And I went, I heard oh, right. with this over the top, the bum, bum, ba ba bum of the bass. And that was what drew me in most to the guitar part. Mm. So then we brought that out by putting it onto different 
synths and piano and things like that and mm. really just beefing it up to where it came this kind of frightening the powerful sense of dread to quote Sue Pan's yeah. Poop Show <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting though because um, hearing them isolated like that makes me think of Reduxa and think of the hip hop connection because they mm-hmm. sound like the kind of you know, low bass mm. yeah. you might hear in certain hip hop yeah. productions yeah, exactly, exactly I think it's no surprise that we this was the album we felt was the one best suited to doing hip hop because there's lots of things and tracks we haven't even talked about that, and this, for example, that just kind of you just go, mm, that sounds like cool, mm. like bass from hip hop or something. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Cre- creating that Moog sound was, I remember that was quite a lot of fun exploring the different sounds on there. We always, when recording the guys as well, we're always, I'm always amping everything. I, I always want it to sound sort of have that organic feel which may sort of allude to some of the folkiness and some you know you mean sort of putting it through guitar amps and things yeah like that. so rather than just plugging it straight into the computer or whatever yeah. you're brought sonically into the actual space that we're in you know so again that gives you that width so you hear that. some air in a way yes exactly yeah. so um so on this moog this is the room here again it's goes quite quiet but and then if i bring it in the that's the actual from the amp, if that makes sense. DI. For, from the DI, yeah. 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 So that, and that's something that we, we've done all the way from the start. Yeah, I remember Charlie, when you had a little like, amp in a, I'm sorry, a microphone in like an air vent here, didn't you? Which you would record. Oh yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. There's, there is. It's for still, the it's still there. Yeah. Um, and you'd record everything all on that amp as well, and sometimes mix some of it in for this weird tinny room sound. It's good for percussions. Yeah. Yeah. You get the weird sort of modulated, just unpredictable effect. Because it's just in a cylindrical event, and it's, you know, so you might as well just plug it in and see what you get. Yeah. You know, quite quite often I'd end up muting it, but then sometimes you get something really quite cool. I think that was something that I was always kind of drawn to you. Um, why I was drawn to you is that you were quite industrious with everything around you. You were like, let's use this, let's use that, yep. let's hit sellotape this. this together. <laughs> you know, let's pull down this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's like loads of stuff. Like you know, there's nothing that couldn't be used as a potential sort of um, sonic mm. flourish. And I think that was something that really helped us kind of get into this whole, yeah. where can yeah. we take production? Yeah. Where can we take our songs? Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, it keeps it fun as well, doesn't it? Mm. You know, I mean, we were talking earlier about how when you guys first started writing, you were just because of where you were, you were limited by what you had in front of you, you know, to write your songs on and to I mean, the jamming. Like so Tom's drum kit was very minimal. Mm. You had a guitar. Your keyboard was just the Yamaha from school sort of thing. Mm. But as a consequence, I think when you are limited with the things you have in front of you, you can be so much more creative. Yeah. So that's quite nice. You know, just like again, just hit a wall or hit the back end of a saucepan, which is essentially what the hi hat sound is on yeah. on albums one and two. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. You get something quite unique, I think. Yeah. Definitely. But it's interesting that um, it could be, uh, hey, we're so creative and wacky, let's just do this. But you need, you need to know what you're doing, don't yeah. you? Yeah, I think you need to keep a clear mind on what actually does genuinely sound good and what, what you're wanting to come across in the recording. Yeah. But at the same time, don't ever stop experimenting, I think, because you never know. Like I said before, you never know like, if something might sound mind-blowing, but it might sound god-awful, but you've got to give it a go. Yeah, mm. yeah. So you started with the guitar part, then Gus's response, yep. um, and then what happened next, and how did it all end up with you taking a trip to Ely Cathedral? 
Well, you then wrote the lyrics, which were these three verses. And the reason I say it's like a hymn is not just because we recorded it in a cathedral with a choir and an organ, but like it has this, each verse starts and ends with the same line, how green was my valley. And it that's quite a hymnal structure. And there's no chorus as such. It's just verse, verse, verse. And then we put those together. And we knew it was an unusually structured song for sure. Mm. We knew it was not going to be, you know, sort of like daytime radio one fodder, but we knew it was probably one of the most interesting songs on the album, I think. Mm. And um, and then I think you said, you know, how do you feel about getting in touch with Edie Cathedral and seeing if the choristers, you know, could sing on it yeah. just to give it that. Because I think in the book, you know, it, Wales has a very strong tradition of choirs mm. and things. And is there even bits about yeah. children singing in choirs oh, in the book? Of, in that book, there's a lot of singing. And even, even reading it, it can be quite emotional, hearing yeah. everyone convene overlooking the town and, and, and singing some songs. And they're very... Um, Royalists. They believe in the monarchy mm. and they're very loyal to the to the royals. And I found that quite moving in a way because I always thought that it that, that sort of like the kind of the cousins of England were kind of probably not that in line with royalty and the monarchy. But um, I, th I thought it was quite moving for some reason. Mm. So, yeah, so uh, we got in touch with my old director of music, Paul Trepti, who's still the director of music at Ely. He's been there for, I think, 28 years years 30 years now which is kind of incredible and, so, and you were a chorister i was a chorister at there Ely, yes, aged, at Ely, aged, uh, what age? uh sort of eight or nine till 13 right and yeah so i mean you know we went up there and we recorded them we we, we put some music together I, I wrote out the score for the boys and um for the organ as well and we drove up on a sunday and i think after they'd done even song they all hung around and we recorded them and it was not easy <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, you have to. We had to bring in a whole load of equipment, you know, obviously, and bring a studio to the cathedral. How much equipment did you have to bring in? Because um, it's, it, I'm just in, yeah. intrigued. You know, obviously, you've got it's a big space. Yes, and you've got to bring if you want to capture the whole of that space, you've got to bring a lot of microphones just to be in yeah. cover that space. Yeah, and also you had to give the choir fallback, so they had to hear the song. So you've got I don't know how many boys there were in the choir. I think Twelve. So you know, at least. 12, 13 for the conductor, sets of headphones to sort out. But I think we managed to get it all in the back of my state car. But, right. I mean, it's it was filled up to the brim, you know. Yeah. And then they didn't use the headphones, did they? Not in the end. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, was, it was two very different but well-established worlds that were trying to work together. Yeah, and yeah. Um, yeah. It was difficult with, uh, obviously, if you're producing and recording a, a song, a click is essential. But mm. then I think they, sort of like yeah, they did. a choir of... Exactly. And I don't think the boys, they weren't getting to grips with some of the rhythmical elements of it, if you know what I mean. So we, Well, we would never sing to something like a, a click in the choir. You know, it was so foreign, exactly. you know. Yeah. So it's so, no surprise that it was it was difficult for everyone. But So they would have been used to singing with the organ yeah, and the cathedral yeah, and that yeah. would be it. So he would be keeping time for yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. But obviously that time would be, you know, would, wouldn't wasn't like jazz, but it was definitely, you know, what he... Would be would be the time, and that, thanks to doing a lot of takes, and the boys sang it really beautifully. Right mm. from the first take, we were just like, yeah, quite overcome by how amazing it sounded standing under the octagon at Ely. If anyone knows that cathedral, you know, and hearing the sound just rising up, and you know, boys singing like that is a special sound all of its own. Mm. And um, that's great. I've got it right here. Yeah.
I wonder if uh, those boys have all lost their voices now. Some of them will have done. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, beautiful sound. We got mm. yeah, we got there. We got there. Yeah, but it was yeah, it did take a little while to find the right combination. And then adding in the organ, which was again, you know, that's a really that was mind blowing. Organ like, for for me, I remember swearing to your old music teacher. <laughs> um, and that still sort oh, of makes me makes me shudder because I'm like, oh god, that was one of those moments where I was so excited <laughs> when he'd finished the take because like it constantly, constantly loops and every time he's pulling out more stops and the organs just getting louder and louder and you can really feel it and at the end I was just like that was fucking amazing <laughs> <laughs> down down the headphones to him and I just heard this like oh okay, okay good <laughs> are we done <laughs> and I was like oh man that's your old music master yeah, yeah, sorry yeah, yeah. man <laughs> he, he wouldn't be used to that kind of language no not at all <laughs> but I'm sure he appreciated the enthusiasm I never heard him use it but I'm sure uh, in his own home he uh, was <laughs> effing and blinding <laughs> all the time <laughs> yeah so yeah. let's hear the organ so uh, okay. the, the organ and the choir both happened simultaneously. We recorded them separately because right, he was okay. conducting the choir. Okay. And then the choir all, you know, they'd done their thing and then went off for tea, I think, or something like that. It was that, a last minute it? thought, wasn't it, really? The uh, organ. The organ. Not, not on the day, but it was no. definitely a thing of Charlie going, hey, while we're up there, can we use the organ? Yeah. yeah. Right. I was really scared to ask. Cause okay. I, just, I just felt like, oh, God, we're already asking a lot. And I don't know. But then I did, and he was like, yeah, of course, that's fine. And it was like the, easy, it's like the easiest yeah. organ part. Because we had all the mics up anyway, we just yeah. had to move them a little bit, and then it's yeah. just like go for it. And you had the music already written out, so yeah. So, so yeah. Written and he did. Out. Did he just play which part? Did he play? He, did he just played part that I'd been. I'd already been playing on an organ, you know, sounding keyboard. Mm. I think we just thought, let's just play this on what it wants to be, i.e., a massive cathedral organ. Yeah. yeah. So it'd be great to hear that, and great to hear. It. So he's pulling out stops as he. Yeah. So for each chorus, it's getting bigger and bigger. And so the first chorus, you don't have the boys. Second chorus, the boys are singing an octave lower, and the second chorus, the boys are singing an octave up as well. And the yeah. organs, he's pulled out all the stops, you know, literally and metaphorically. Yeah. <laughs> and is that where that phrase comes from? It, it is, is. Yeah. indeed. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Pulling out all the stops. So this is chorus one, just to show you how it mm. develops. So that's almost like parish church on a Sunday, yes, you yeah, know, like gathered granny today, playing the organ yeah, yeah, to celebrate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sounds nice, but not yeah. stirring. So, and then this is the next chorus. So now we're up to sort of decent, decent-sized church, perhaps a, a minster. Okay, so you get that, and then we move on to the. This is now the final chorus. And that's all just live in the room. There's no artificial anything on that. It was. Um, it, it felt like if you've ever watched Independence Day when the um, when the ship's coming over and it's shadowing the whole New York City. Yeah, it was a bit bit like that when it was <laughs> when it was played. All the stops were out. Yeah, yeah. it was like shocking, but yeah. it was really amazing. And that's the thing you can't quite. I don't just you know, and it's that here. You just feel yeah. that feeling. The whole room was shaking. You know. Yeah. Um, it was just brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So, I mean, that sense of achievement at the end of the day mm. at Ely must have mm. been quite something. It was lovely, mm. yeah. And, getting, and like we were saying, just getting to go back there and, and be back in the cathedral and see the current choristers and 
talk to them and stuff was was really lovely. Yeah, mm. it was great. A good day. And create music that really complemented the words that you had written and linked into the book that had inspired you in the first place. Mm. Um, you know, it's very cleverly woven together, I think. You no. Know, well, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I'm certainly very impressed by achievements made by men and women under the umbrella of religion. And that's architecture and that's music. And and I, I have a dream really with this song, which is it might be used in in a church one day. It might be um, that people might take it to more than three choruses. Um, sorry, verses. They might do six, eight. 15. 15. I'd, I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear someone else's interpretation of it because I do think it could really work well as a hymn in a church, you know, or a sort of an all-male Welsh choir mm. singing it and, and and taking it further. I think it's... Welsh National Anthem. <laughs> You've had it first. <laughs> no. But, it would be um, good at the proms. They're all out of hall. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a good song. Mm. Um, there's one other... Uh, interesting thing on this we're talking about field recordings before mm. and one of the things that happened right as we were basically due to master the album is that we had some stock uh, samples that we were using and um, we didn't get clearance to use them in the end so uh, I had to go out and uh, recreate everything at the very last minute. So, what were these stock samples then? What, what, are, what were well, things on? like police cars and there's like because on this song there's a police sort of car chase you can hear the sirens and and there's various other things throughout the album obviously you've got the swimming pool that was fine we'd already re recorded that but there was a fire crackling wolves howling w wolves howling springboard a, a helicopter yeah springboard someone jumping into the swimming pool on um in cold blood so all those things we somehow had to recreate all of a sudden I mean, i thought we'd handed in the album and suddenly yeah. had another two days of <laughs> finding just, all these just things. two days to to run around yes. to many kinds but, of locations but we did it and um, i mean i sort of had to recruit a few of my friends around here and silly little things like there's a builder site outside and the diving board there was a bit of flexible plastic and i managed to just put it over a block of wood and you could just flick it and it was like that's your diving board that sounds great <laughs> yeah um and then went to my friend tim's house to light a little fire because he got a little campfire spot in his garden so we lit the fire and recorded that for the crackles and then that afternoon, I was trying to get a police car. So he lives in Streatham. So I was just had a coffee on Streatham High Street. And, <laughs> just wait and it's like job. all crime just disappeared that night. <laughs> just, just, you know, nothing. So as, we were, as the fire was crackling, there was the most amazing police siren that went past his house. Um, so we got that. So that was like a stroke of luck. Mm. And then my assistant, Jay, actually did a few sort of synthesized bits to kind of enhance. So actually the helicopter you hear on Adeline isn't a real helicopter be... what sorry guys wow I didn't know that <laughs> um, it's all coming out now yeah but it, it really worked you know it was you know, just a Juno 60 with a bit of a few toys on it right wow but it does actually sound like a big sort of Chinook going through the air so yeah. is that siren on here then yeah so Can this we is the, we, and again we've I have messed around with it a bit but this is um, the police siren so this has got the tremolo on it if I take that off so that was a big crime a big crime someone's been very naughty and where does that come in the song it's just after just in the middle when the dulcimer comes in isn't it yeah yeah so you've got you have the about. first chorus guitar breakdown 
you've broken down a few times playing this on stage, haven't you? Oh god, it's so difficult when you when you fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> I just look at Gus, helpless. You hear the police cars there. So this is life in the town. Well, again, it's one of those things where it's just like, I think we kind of uh, took off our story hats and then put on our what sounds fucking cool hats. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. Um, that's, that's actually my sister playing the flute, huh? Lovely. Um, so, yeah, and one thing we should mention, Gus just mentioned the dulcimer. So in that section with the uh, police cars, there's um, John Witten, lovely, lovely man. Came down and who I went to sixth form with and hadn't seen since sixth form was a complete coincidence. Yeah, that's bizarre. Crazy. I mean, actually, he yeah, it's through Nick. That Nick. Oh, Butterfield. Butterfield that makes yeah. sense. So that's all that whole connection as well. as well. Yeah. So how we know each other? Yes, exactly. Right. So it was Nick who you met who going to get a drink. Yeah. Yep. And and then said ambitiously to Gus, "Oh, my friend Charlie <laughs> my has friend. a studio. He'll yeah. record you." <laughs> ambitiously exactly. to Charlie as well. Oh, my friends in the band, they're really good. You know, yeah. <laughs> sort of, he's sticking his neck out in both directions. Yeah. Um, but then he pe- repaid the favour. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, he, he, that yeah, was a big no, favour. Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I remember, actually, I'm sort of digressing here, but when he sent me over that first demo, I remember I was down at my dad's house just listening to it on a laptop just on the kitchen table, and people were just sort of making cups of tea around me and stuff, and I was just listening, and I was just like, yeah, <laughs> I've got to get involved. I've got to get, you know, ask these guys to work with me and <laughs> invite them down to my studio. And so mm. the rest is history, really. Yeah, fantastic. But anyway, so Nick introduced John um, you'd already written the part in you Gus I think yeah 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 we're just looking for a slightly different sonic for it so around and it, it's just a bit more interesting because it's so many strings on it you can't perfectly tune it so it's kind of got lovely overtones and things like that and um, so he's just got beaters and mm. you play it with beaters so it's just a lovely it's almost James Bondy in a way isn't it you know yeah mm. It's it's really amazing hearing all these isolated elements because they all stand up on their own so yeah. well, don't they? And they got the strings there. Yeah, they do. They do. There they go. Yeah, so that's just one part of the journey, the, you know, the amazing yeah. journey of this song, really. Yeah. But yeah. quite a moment of panic to discover that um, th- those... Field recordings yeah, weren't field allowed. Recordings, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Actually, get your own field recordings. We were yeah, that create panic. them. I, but yeah. I was in. <laughs> I was somewhere. I was yeah. No. Come on, come on. The, the, <laughs> I was I was a present for my girlfriend, but I was I was at Soho Farmhouse, and and Charlie was like, "Oh yeah, we've got to do these." These bloody things again. And I was just like, oh, I'm really sorry, man. I put the phone down. I went straight to my uh, three course uh, lunch meal and just like, so who's, who's that? And I was just like, that oh, was Charlie. He's having some problems. <laughs> What's that? We're getting horseback riding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually, they turned out, I think, uh, Pretty much all of them sound better than what we had before. Yeah. So it was a, it was a good good exercise. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. So um, in a minute, then I think we'll hear Pleader in all its glory. But before that, we have some regular questions that we ask all of our tape notes contributors nice. and participants. Um, and so I think we should go through some of those. And uh, the first of those is: What is the best piece of advice you've been given on your respective journeys as producers and musicians? I think mine would be, I remember my, my brother sort of playing him some demos and him kind of suggesting taking things out, putting them in a demo and then taking them out, you know, not everything 
that was in there when you wrote the song has to be in there when you record and finish the song. And that was the first time I ever heard that. And I, mm. I don't know what to say. <laughs> but that's cool. good advice. Yeah. Very good advice. Yeah. Um, I would never try and just copy something exactly. You know, like don't think, oh, that's you know popular right now. I need to make something like that. Just make something that resonates with you. Not don't try and sort of double something because it's already been done. You know, yeah. and do something that excites you, and that's that. Yeah. Um, Charlie, is there one plug-in mm. or piece of kit you could not live without? <laughs> That's a very technically specific question. Uh, what's but, the one yeah. that makes us sing better? <laughs> <laughs> Melodyne. <Yes>. Um, <laughs> Which we never no, use. No, 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 never use that. Never use that. <laughs> one piece of kit that I can never do without. Are there a, a variety of, say, plugins that you would always think, right, I need them? Yeah, I mean, there's there's few. I mean, there's depending on the t- type of song or whatever, there's there's loads. But, I mean, generally... Um, I'm a massive fan of the UAD stuff, so they've got some incredible replications of the real thing. Um, even to the point where you don't have to really do anything on them, you just put them on and they sound like you're going through that lovely piece of analogue kit, which is great. Um, Wave's doing some incredible stuff as well, um, some pretty sort of detailed EQs and things like that that uh, I love using. Um, and then also sound toys as well, like um, some of the, you know, the Echo Boy and Decapitator. Decapitator ends up on quite a lot of stuff. I'm very familiar with the Decapitator. I see that. Yeah. So lovely sort of bit of distortion on things, you know. So I don't know. There's there's lots yeah. that I like. Yeah. No, do you, do you great... think we should um, mention um, Tom's drum kit and your drum kit? Just because he's got a very, Tom's got a very interesting drum kit and your drum yeah. kit's a vintage uh-huh. something or other. I don't know. Okay. okay I mean, can... so live, um, Tom has quite an interesting drum kit setup. And like you know, he never uses symbols for one, which is to record is a real joy when there's no symbols involved because they can really swamp everything and be quite painful to the ears sometimes. So it just means, from a point of view, when I'm recording Tom playing, I can really go to town with like the room mics and yeah, you know, the funny mics in the in the uh, aircon pipes and stuff, and get decapitator out or something like that, and, and just really go to town with the distortion in the room. And that, when you do that, that really brings out the nuances in the room. And sometimes you can hear Tom breathing and all the rest of it, you know. Um, but it's great because you get a lovely effect on, on essentially the kick and, kick and snare. Um, so uh, he has some bongos and he has his MPC set up now as well. I mean, it's, his setup now is quite a lot more extensive than it was when we first started. Um, like I say, it was a kick, snare and a back end of a saucepan was essentially what he had when a, a, tom, a couple of toms so when we record we use my shells and so my kick my toms and then he brings the rest of his stuff so the bongos and his snare drum and uh cowbell and stuff like that and so, what are your shells what what it's an old uh, it's an old ludwig from the early 70s um i can't give you the exact model but i'm uh, surprised no. yeah <laughs> and disappointed <laughs> I, actually do you know what i'm not very good with models um, of you know pieces of kit at all I yeah. always have to be like yeah no that one with the big button and the white front or whatever it is um, so whenever I, I go to any sort of like producer meetups I just keep my head down and don't really say much because <laughs> uh, I really can't sometimes it just sound like I don't know what I'm talking about yeah <laughs> but at the same time if you know what it is and you've got it there in front of you you can use it then yeah. that's all you need to know and then mm. the less the less buttons on the front the better for me because you want a piece of kit to do a particular thing. Mm. And sometimes you don't have enough time to just go, well, oh, I wonder what this one does and this one does. And you could be there for hours 
losing your mind over, over a certain thing. But when I am presented with a piece of kit which just has one, one knob on it, up and down, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it does and there it is. Yeah. Uh, moving away slightly from the, uh, the technical side of things, um, we've got some listener questions as well. Um, so to Alt-J and Charlie, this is from Danny in Portland, how does a lasting relationship with a producer and an artist work in your favour when recording an album? That's interesting. In, in many ways, I think that we've kind of answered that mm. through this whole conversation because this is the relationship, <clears throat> isn't it? Yeah, that, exactly. We're friends, aren't we? We're friends. Mm. And I think we're friends before we're colleagues. And I think you build these kind of synapses between you that mean you can get to where you want to get faster. So, you know, sort of like saying, oh, remember how we made this sound like this on that last track? Or that last album, you know, how about we do something like that again? And that's quite cool, you know, knowing, yeah. or let's let's make those drums do that thing you do with the drums where they sound really good or whatever, yeah. you know, rather than... I remember we worked with another producer once, not before we met Charlie, but we we basically got a week of demoing at a, a major label kind of place. And it was cool, but I remember you trying to explain something you want to do with your vocals, where Charlie would often double track your vocals and mm. you couldn't explain what you wanted. And this producer couldn't understand what you wanted and mm. it was frustrating for you and confusing for him mm. and uh, you know with charlie it's it's it doesn't you know, happen yeah because also you know we don't know how computers work and stuff really so no. having a producer that you can talk to almost in a code or a, you know a shorthand is, is is very is very very useful for recording mm. interesting yeah. um alex from brighton has one specifically for you joe oh, gosh. um you have a very unique voice is this something that you've honed and worked on or did it just develop naturally yeah, that's a good question, Alex. Um, <laughs> I originally I didn't actually think I had a very good voice, and I think as a teenager when I was dealing with puberty, um, that heavy-handed, heavy-handed thing that I think we all have to deal with at some point in our life as well. No, I I think I think I, I used to think I couldn't sing, and um, that was uh, and, and so when we first started writing together, um, I was very into the idea of actually giving that job to someone else um, and, and getting and employing um, a female vocalist. Um, but then the, I think what actually happened was I started, when I started singing publicly, I then realized through affirmation through friends and um, exposing my voice to the public. I think I then started realizing that I could sing. And I think knowing then that I felt I could sing helped me hone where my voice could go. Um, and um, I realised that I, I could do, I had a good range and I could hold notes and I could, I think some people maybe when they write songs, they're never happy with their singing voice. Like a lot of people are surprised to hear their voice once it's been recorded and played back to them. They don't like the sound of their real voice. And I think I actually quite liked my singing voice. and I felt like it fitted well with the, the guitar. And the songs that I was writing, I think those things kind of sort of like shaped, um, you know, how I felt comfortable mm. um, working with Gus and Tom and Charlie. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, especially if Gus had a, a chorister background, you know, yeah. he would have opinion about voices. And, and yet, you know, you have a very distinctive voice, which gives identity to what Alt-J are all about. Mm. Um, and so was that... Did you share your um, insecurities with Gus when you were forming the band? Obviously, you were saying that you know you wanted to, you would have said, "I think we need another singer. I think mm. we need to get 
uh, a girl in or whatever. And um, um, how did you feel about that, Gus? Yeah, I, I would certainly liked Joe's voice a lot and felt that he had a very unique voice. And I thought, you know, I think I probably, I hope, I hope I encouraged you. But I think even by that point, you probably felt quite comfortable that, you know, you would, you'd, Getting to sing in front of Gwill and then me was probably the, the biggest struggle in a yeah. way. And once you got that out of the way, you probably thought, well, you know, once you've done your first couple of performances, even just to one person, mm. or especially just to one person, it's not that hard to do it to 10. And then before you know it, yeah. you know, you're doing Brixton. I think it really was public singing that brought my singing voice to where it is now. And mm. I remember I, when I was a kid, I used to write songs. I was more fascinated with writing and singing than I was with learning other people's work. And my dad used to sing a lot, so I probably got that from him. But I had to wait for everyone to leave the house, the family house. And that's the only when I, I began to sing because I was so embarrassed by it. And I thought I wasn't very good and I, I, wanted to get, I wanted to get better because there was this, there was this sort of wheel turning inside me that, that, that was telling me that this is where you're most happy when you're holding a guitar and you're attempting to sing. So. Mm, very interesting. So it's almost like you're challenging yourself and you yeah. that helped progress you. Which yeah. Is, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Jay from Manor House asks, when writing, do you consider how a song will translate live or do you not worry about that? I think it, to answer from a studio perspective, um, we don't worry about it. And we've definitely, in the past, I think quite early on, I think we had to establish that was a bit of a rule with us. Yeah. You know, we're never going to say... Oh, hang on a minute, I've played about five different keyboard parts on this track. We need to take them away. We're like, no, no, worry about it later. And yeah. so, yeah, we don't we don't worry about that at all. And I think if we did, we would be a very different band, you know. And I love garage bands and, you know, bands that record all their stuff live and that's amazing. I love lots of bands like that, but that's just not, that's not who we are and it's it would only hold us back, I think. Yeah, mm. yeah, and that's it's, it's a great thing that you're not held back by that. Yeah, thank yeah. you. And, uh, and you've got a live album to prove it. We yeah. have. We have. <laughs> um, thanks so much for coming. It's cool. been particularly great to have you all here because it's been a big ambition of Tape Notes to get Alt-J with Charlie in a room talking together about the music that you've created over the last few years. I mean, I've been lucky enough because of my radio show to have talked to you, Gus and Joe, and to talk to Charlie uh, in- individually on different things. Mm. Um, but to uh, have the three of you together in the studio or one of the studios that you've created this magic over the last few years has been fantastic and also it's particularly special for Tape Notes because Tape Notes is something that has grown out of the In the Woods Festival yeah. which is the festival mm. that was founded by Charlie as you know Charlie you're part of it um, with your <laughs> friends In a Wood mm. in Kent um, and that's where I first met you as well yeah. yes um, it is at yeah. In the Woods when you first played there um, on the smaller stage. Yeah, 2012. Um, and I think maybe nice. the next day yeah, or, yeah. or you had either just recorded a session or you were just about to record a session yeah. for Exposure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And that was really exciting. The smaller so, stage was 2011, I think. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, that says 12 and you were headlining that one on, oh, yeah. on John's T-shirt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm wearing oh, yeah. A, an In The Woods T-shirt, their limited <laughs> edition, vintage um, they're worth a fortune, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> well, no, it's we we've you know in the woods was a was a was a great part of us uh, our formative years as a band, yeah. and uh, so we're proud to be proud to be on tape notes. Thank you. Yeah, so it's super nice to have it all come back together. Um, but we should listen to Pleader now. It's all its glory um, from uh, its ridiculously quiet intro through to the full splendor of the organ of Ely Cathedral in all its glory.
If you want to ask a question on a future episode, head over to our Instagram page where you can find out who we've got coming up and also see behind-the-scenes photos of the podcast being recorded. To keep up to date with the latest news from the podcast, go to our website, tapenotes.co.uk, and sign up to our mailing list. If you've enjoyed this episode, there are a number of different ways to help support the podcast. You can subscribe and leave us a review, spread the word by telling your friends about us, but most importantly, you can donate. Head to our website, click on Donate, and give whatever you fancy. I'm John Kennedy. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye.